0: Okay, would you please gather back in and make your way to your seats? And as you do so, uh, open your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one off the back table. We're going to be in Hebrews today, Hebrews chapter 4. My name is Nathan, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege to preach from a, uh, a wonderful, beautiful passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and I'm going to ask you to stand. Aaron, did you just sit down? No, you're still standing. Good job. Aaron knew where we were headed. So we stand uh, because we believe that when we read Scripture, God is speaking to us, and so we stand to honor that, to recognize that. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, hear the word of the Lord. that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. God of, God of mercy, God of grace, we confess that our thoughts of you are far too small. In our minds, in our hearts, we form you into our image, imagining you to be like us. Lord, forgive us for this, and we pray that today you would use your word like a hammer to shatter those false images by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, would you take us by the hand, lead us into your heart so that we love you, that we trust you for who you truly are. God, we Draw near to your throne of grace now through our great high priest, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So that's really the end goal of these three verses, is to give us confidence to draw near to the throne of God and to believe that it really is for us a throne of grace. And so if you are so disappointed with yourself, so frustrated with your weaknesses and failures that you think that God must also be disappointed in you and frustrated with you, if you find it almost unbelievable that God could actually be for you, if you feel like you're desperately thirsty for hope, then I want to invite you today to drink deeply from this ice-cold glass of gospel water that the Holy Spirit has prepared for you here in this passage. And today, maybe, and it may be for the first time, I invite you to let the constant intercession And the compassionate heart of Jesus draw you confidently to the throne of God. And you might say, well, I don't even know what that means. What is intercession? And is the heart of Jesus really compassionate? It's not how I see him. Well, I pray that today in this passage you'll see, you'll both understand what the intercession of Jesus is and why it's precious. And um, I hope you will catch a glimpse of the heart of Jesus for sinners. Because these verses don't just tell us, in verse 16, that we should draw near. They don't just say, you ought to, you need to draw near, you must draw near. But they give us assurance that we can draw near with confidence. And the good news about this is that none of the assurances that we're given here depend on us. They're all about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing right now for us. And especially they're about how the heart of Jesus is touched by our struggles with sin. And so verse 14 gives us that first assurance that we can boldly approach the throne of God. Let's read it again. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession. Confidence towards God is grounded in the reality that Jesus is our great high priest who is constantly interceding for us. That should give us confidence, but in order to gain that confidence, we have to have some knowledge about what the the function of the high priest is. And so um, over the next chapters, we're going to be studying uh, for weeks and weeks, really, what the high priest was in the Old Testament and how Jesus far surpasses that priesthood. But this is just going to be a brief kind of snapshot of that. So under the Old Testament system, the Jewish system, the priest represented his people to God. So that meant that when he drew near to God, he was representing his people. So in a sense, he was bringing all the people near to God. And um, if you're with us through our study of Exodus, you may remember this whole section that we taught about the tabernacle and how the tabernacle both provided a way for the people of God to draw near to him, that his manifest presence was made known in the the most holy place, that inner sanctuary, but that also the tabernacle provided a distance between God and his people, that there was that there was the presence of God, but that the people were separate from God by this tent. And then later on, we had this, this temple that also showed where the presence of God was, but also demonstrated that God was other, that he was separate from his people, that approaching him carelessly would result in punishment, even death. And so it was only the high priest who ever had direct access to God. No one else could ever draw near, both in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. So the high priest could draw near, but even the high priest was extremely limited in the way that he could draw near. He, he could only enter into the presence of God under certain very specific conditions laid out by God. And then, that was only once a year. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement... Could the high priest enter in with a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of all the people? And the high priest had to mediate between the people and God because of what we read last week in Hebrews, chapter uh, four, verses 11 through 13, where it talks about God being the all-seeing judge whose word exposes the, the very inmost depths of who we are. It exposes our sin. And so as, as we're exposed to God, In all his righteousness and holiness, we are exposed to the threat of his holy wrath. And so we see that unmediated access to God is our undoing. You may remember in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah comes before the throne of God. He sees God in all his glory, and he he doesn't just rush right up to the throne of God. He falls down. He cries out. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone! For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He said, I've seen the Lord of hosts. I am completely undone. Isaiah recognized what we need to recognize, that in order to come to God, we must have a mediator. One to offer a sacrifice for our sins. We need a high priest. And the writer of Hebrews here in this passage, he said it before, but he's saying it again, that Jesus is that high priest. And he says he is our great high priest. And the Greek word there is megon. The word that's translated great is megon. And you can hear the root word in there. It's a word that's been carried over into English. It's the word mega. Um, Jesus is, he's saying, our mega high priest. And when we hear the word mega, we probably just think of size. Like maybe a theater has a mega screen but originally, the word mega also referred to high rank. Referred to the person who is highest in ability, in authority, and in power. And that's who Jesus is. He's the mega high priest. He's the, the high priest who is above all in authority, ability, and power. In fact, he's the high priest that all the other high priests were just a shadow of, that we're pointing to. And again, uh, this just introduces Jesus as high priest, and we're going to be looking at his, his priestly work and the significance of it and how it is more mega than the, the high priestly work of, of any other high priest. That's going to actually carry on from here all the way into chapter 10. So um, there will be many reasons that Jesus is the mega high priest unpacked as we go through that. But right here, the author of Hebrews gives two reasons, and they both highlight the nearness of Jesus to God. One highlights the relational nearness of Jesus to God and the other the physical nearness of Jesus to God. So first our great high priest has this unique relational nearness to God. As we see here in verse 14, Jesus is the son of God. He's the divine son of God. No other high priest could make that claim. Jesus is above every other high priest, infinitely more able to intercede for his people because of his unique relationship to God as Father. The eternal Son of God, the one who from all of eternity has been nearest and dearest to the heart of the Father. He's the one who's interceding for us. He has a unique relational nearness to God. And Jesus also has a literal, physical nearness to God that none of us have and that no other high priest ever had. He's our mega high priest because of what it says here, that he has passed through the heavens. And when it says the heavens here, that just means the sky. It means that Jesus is no longer in this universe physically. He's moved beyond this created realm and into that mysterious realm where God dwells. And as we saw right at the beginning of this letter within the first few verses, Jesus ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what this is talking about. What it means is that, and this is kind of mind-blowing if you've never thought about it before, but it means that Jesus, in his glorified human body, is right now constantly in the immediate presence of God. And he, doesn't, he doesn't enter into God's presence On our behalf, just once a year, like the the Old Testament priest did. Jesus has a continual, uninterrupted access to God. This high priestly work of Jesus, his intercession for us, it is uninterrupted. It is constant intercession. Because he is right at the throne of God. And he's there interceding for us. And so, if you think, well, I thought that the high priestly work of Jesus was a sacrifice, and he sacrificed himself. And that just happened one time, right? Yes, that, that aspect of his high priestly work. That was one time he offered up himself as a sacrifice, never to be offered again. He died on the cross, propitiating, appeasing, absorbing the wrath of God for our sins. And that aspect of his priestly work, that sacrifice-making aspect, that's finished. But his work of interceding for us, of representing us as his people to God, that's, that's ongoing. It is constant. So what does that really mean for us? How, how does the relational and physical nearness of Jesus to God give us confidence to draw near to God to ask for help? Well, just imagine if you were to... Uh, if you wanted to go to your boss for a raise, and your your boss is maybe a big company, you know, he's he's a big deal, you're down here a lowly peon, but you want to ask for a raise, we'd well, feel intimidated, unless maybe your boss's right-hand man was your dad. And you knew that your dad had huge influence over the decisions that your boss made. It would change the way that you approached them. Or maybe you have a uh you want to start a business, and you need a license in the city of Winsfield to start that business. Well, you got to go to the city council, but if all the city council members are your best friends, it's going to change your approach. Maybe you want tickets to the final game of the World Series, and you, uh, you, you the only pull that you have is that maybe your brother owns one of the teams. Well, approaching someone to get those tickets, it's, it's going to be... A lot different than if if you had no connection. The reason that all of those situations would give you a confidence is bringing this request, a confidence that you wouldn't have otherwise, is that you have an in, right? And what this passage is teaching us is that Jesus, the Son of God, seated at the right hand of God in heaven, is our in with the Lord of the universe, And, of course, those examples, they all fall way short of the mark, but maybe they give you a small glimpse of the boldness that having Jesus as your intercessor should give you as you approach God. And what I really hope they point you to is the fact that it's not who you are that gives you confidence. It's who you know. It's your relationship to Jesus that gives you confidence confidence to approach God, which is why we pray in the name of Jesus. It's not just a meaningless or throwaway phrase, if we understand it rightly. What it means is that we have no right at all on our own merit to approach the throne of God. We come only through Jesus. But if we're trusting in the constant intercession of Jesus for us, if we're joined to him by faith, then we have complete free total access to God. We are seated in Christ at the throne of God. We have complete access to the Father. And so the writer says, hold fast to your confession of Jesus. Don't put your hope to approach God in in anyone or anything else other than Jesus. Don't put your hope in your theological purity Don't put your hope in your attendance here or your membership here. Don't put your hope in your own moral goodness. Be drawn to boldly approach God because of the constant intercession of your great high priest. And so that's the first thing that should give us confidence to approach the throne of God, that that we have this constant intercession. But it actually seems that the, the author of Hebrews is aware of and he's sensitive to And in verse 15, responding to a potential obstacle here. And that obstacle is that the very fact that Jesus is so great might be a problem in our minds. So instead of drawing us near to God, it might make us reluctant to come. If we think, well, Jesus has passed through the heavens, as he just said, which means he's not here. He's distant from us physically, physically which might make us think, does he really care about my mundane life, my little problems? And not only that, we were just told that he is the son of God, that he's holy, he's pure, he's infinitely far above us in every way, he's he's supremely powerful. And so we might ask, because of who he is, doesn't that mean that he's more likely to be irritated with me if I approach the throne with all my neediness, all my problems, all my repeated coming and confessing the same things, asking for the same things over and over again. If Jesus is so high and mighty, is he really going to be interested in hearing from me? Does he really care? And these are the questions that verse 15 directly addresses. So verse 15, let's read it again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Church, if we can truly believe this, I think we'll find this to be one of the most amazing and comforting verses in Scripture. I pray that God will work this into our hearts. The writer of Hebrews is so intent on causing this to sink in that he uses a double negative. So instead of saying simply, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us, it's like he can hear the objection that's in our minds, like he's anticipating it, like we're, he can hear us saying, sounds like this great high priest is so high and mighty that there's no way he can sympathize with me. And so he responds emphatically, wrong, we do not have a high priest who is Unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And what makes it so encouraging is that Jesus, uh, what Jesus sympathizes with, it's, it's not just our physical weaknesses, although because he was truly human, he took on all of our physical weaknesses, so he understands those things too. But what we're assured of specifically is that Jesus sympathizes with us in the very things that we are most ashamed of. The exact things that we think would make him unsympathetic. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, specifically when it comes to temptation. I mean, look at it. That's what's highlighted here, isn't it? Our great high priest is one who in every respect, and that means in every way, has been tempted as we are. Of course, the sympathy of Jesus doesn't mean that he approves when we give in to temptation. But he absolutely understands how hard it is to fight. And a couple of of objections might come to mind. You might be thinking, well, is that really true? How is it that Jesus has been tempted in every way that I've been? I mean, he didn't have access to pornography on his phone He couldn't, uh, he didn't have the temptation to either read or even spread juicy gossip through social media. And obviously, Jesus didn't face those exact things. But if you think about it, those things are really just conduits for temptation. So it's kind of like saying that Jesus never drank water because uh, he never was able to turn on the faucet. Jesus faced. Temptations. the same temptations. Jesus faced the temptation to lust. I mean, how about when a woman who was known as a sinner, which probably means that she was known for being sexually promiscuous, how about when she was washing Jesus' feet with her hair? I think there was no temptation to lust there. Uh, the temptation to gossip or slander, that's always been around. It's not any different really now because it happens electronically. Jesus... Jesus, more than anyone, could have justified talking badly about people behind their back, right? I mean, we do that because we think we're better than other people. Well, Jesus actually was better than everyone, so surely he could have gossiped about people. Surely it was a temptation for him. It was a real temptation. And so we should take this passage at face value. You haven't faced a single temptation that Jesus didn't have to battle to. He understands the allure of sin, and he's not ashamed of you for being so weak as to be tempted. This verse says, far from it, he actually sympathizes with you. But another objection here might be, well, he can't really sympathize because it says it right here. He never sinned. So how can he really know the intense pressure that I feel when I give in to greed or lust or anger or selfishness? C.S. Lewis imagined someone objecting exactly like that, and here's what he wrote in response to that objection. I think it's a, a great response. He said, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. So what Lewis is saying is that Jesus, because he never sinned, because he never gave in to temptation, actually experienced an intensity of temptation that we've never known. It's like only the tree that is still standing after the hurricane has felt the full extent of the hurricane's furious wind the tree that fell over and lay down it didn't know what the wind would have been like five minutes later so jesus understands temptation even more deeply than we do and yet incredibly jesus doesn't look down on us because we do give in he actually sympathizes with us he feels for us he knows how difficult the battle is His heart goes out to us when we are tempted. As we saw earlier in this letter, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And this is, I know for many of us, a much, much needed truth. Because we have this kind of suspicion that Jesus is always just a little bit irritated with us, that he's always just a little bit disappointed with us. That He's always a little bit hesitant for us to come to him because we're so messed up, so dirty. And really, verse 15 attacks all of those kinds of feelings, those anti-gospel feelings. And it's really worthy of a whole sermon, at least on its own. Um, In 1651, there's a Puritan pastor named Thomas Goodwin who published not just a sermon, but a 156-page book that unpacks and applies just that verse, just verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4. And the title of that book is The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. And I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read some excerpts, and what I've read is amazing. It's wonderful. Um, some of you may have heard about a book that came out much more recently by a guy named Dane Ortlund called Gentle and Lowly. And in Gentle and Lowly, um, Dane Ortlund is relying quite a bit on Goodwin's book. Um, he, adds, uh, he draws from other writers and other places in Scripture as well. But um, the language of Dane Ortlund's book being written much more recent is, is easier to understand. And so if you struggle with believing that Jesus is, is really for you, I'd really encourage you to read um, Gentle and Lowly. Or if you're cool with Puritan-esque language, then for sure pick up Goodwin's book. But at the end of his book, Thomas Goodwin gives four ways to apply this passage, to apply this glorious truth that the heart of Jesus is sympathetic towards us. And I want to give you those four applications. The first one he gives is that Christ's heart of compassion affords us the strongest encouragements against sin. We know that Christ's heart is not at rest until our sins are removed. Those sins, I love this, those sins move him more to pity than to anger, even though he hates them. Our sins move Christ more to pity than to anger, even though he hates our sins. Second application, whatever trial, temptation, or misery we may suffer, we know that Christ also endured it and that his heart moves to relieve us in our distress. It's not just that he feels sorrow. It's not just that he is sympathetic, but his sympathetic heart is actually, it moves him to to help us. Number three, the thought of how much we grieve Christ's heart by sin and disobedience is the strongest incentive we have against sinning. If we love the Lord, we won't want to grieve his heart with our sin. Number four, in all our miseries and distresses, though every human comforter fails, we know that we have a friend who will help, pity, and comfort us Christ in heaven. So, the way that Goodwin pictures Jesus relating to us is as a a parent who's seeing their child suffer under some terrible disease. And so, just imagine seeing your child suffer from monkeypox. Monkeypox is a disease that has a funny name, but it's not funny at all for those who suffer with it. It actually causes huge boils and open sores all over the body, even inside the mouth and every other extremely sensitive part of your body that you can imagine. It's extremely painful So if your child was suffering with that disease, even if you knew that your child had contracted that disease through sexual sin, wouldn't your heart go out to them? Wouldn't you have compassion for them? Wouldn't your heart ache for them? There's no way that you would just stand by and go, well, you got what you deserved. You would do everything in your power to ease their suffering. And that's how Jesus responds To your suffering under the effects of your sin. His heart goes out to you. I mean, if you can't imagine just standing by coldly while your child suffers under some terrible disease, then don't imagine Jesus standing by coldly with his arms crossed as you suffer under temptations and sins. Not only does his heart go out to you, he is moved to help you. So because of the constant intercession of Jesus, because of the compassionate heart of Jesus, then verse 16, because of these things, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what does it mean to draw near to God's throne with confidence? What it means coming with boldness. It means coming with openness. It means that we don't have to come creeping towards God like if you've ever seen a dog that got into something, tore something up, and it knew it was going to be in trouble. The way a dog kind of creeps towards you with its tail between its legs slowly, just waiting for you to yell or lash out or whatever they're expecting, we don't have to come to God that way. In fact, it's like the opposite of that. We should come bounding up joyfully with our tails wagging towards God. It means that we don't have to try to hide or cover up our weaknesses when we come to God, as if we could hide anything from Him anyway. We come boldly, because remember, it's only ever through the intercession of our high priest that we can come to the throne of God. And our high priest is constantly interceding for us. So when you approach God trusting in Jesus to intercede for you, you can be absolutely certain that you will receive what verse 16 says, mercy, mercy instead of condemnation. And so don't let your sins stand in the way of you going to God. You, You don't have to clean yourself up enough to deserve for God to hear you. In fact, you can't do that. At your filthiest, if you humbly approach the throne with faith in the priestly work of Jesus then you absolutely, without doubt, will find that God is full of mercy, that he's full of grace, that he's actually eager to hear you, eager to help you. And it's because of the intercession of Jesus that the throne of God isn't a throne of judgment for us. It's what the writer here calls the throne of grace. The throne of God is a throne of unending, overflowing grace for us. And it can be hard for us to really connect with the idea of approaching the throne of a king because we're not ruled by a king. Don't have much contact with royalty and even, you know, places that do, like uh, England, it's, their royalty is, you know, it's a, it's a show. There's not much uh, real majesty or dread that comes with the um, the monarchy there. And so we don't have a a real close kind of connection, but maybe you remember from the uh, biblical story of Queen Esther that even she, as the queen, she didn't have free access to the king, right? She had to come in and, and she actually, Queen Esther, when she needed to approach the king, she asked for all of her people to be fasting and praying for her because it was that serious of a thing. She, she prayed that God would change the heart of the king so that he would receive her well, So she had to come in and wait to see if the king would, do you remember this, if he would hold out his scepter to her. And if he didn't hold out the scepter, then it meant immediate death. It meant he had rejected her, that she was judged guilty for approaching him. But if he did hold out the scepter, then it meant she could boldly approach and ask for whatever she needed. And so because Jesus is interceding for us, it's as if The king of the universe is constantly holding out his scepter of welcome to us. Saying, you are welcome to come. This isn't a throne of judgment for you. And not only are we welcome to come to God, but we must come to God. You see that? It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. The word that's translated that, it means in order that, so that, with the result that. So confidently draw near to the throne of grace with the result that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. And the implication here then is that if we don't draw near to the throne of grace, we won't receive that mercy. We won't receive grace to help us. And this isn't speaking of The eternal decrees of God or of God's providential working for our good. This is speaking of the relational aspect of our faith. That God has said that I will dispense mercy and grace to those who humbly come through Christ and ask. And even the tense of the verb that's translated draw near, it shows us this. A, a very literal translation of verse 16 says, So let us be drawing near the throne of grace with confidence in order that we may receive mercy and find grace for well-timed help. So let us be drawing near. That means we need to be constantly, continually drawing near to the throne of grace. And why? Because we continually need mercy. We continually need Help to hold fast or a confident faith in Jesus. And you might object that when you approach God for help, sometimes it feels like He's not paying attention, or that he answers with a nah. Again, that literal translation that I just read is helpful because it makes the Greek a little bit more clear. What the ESV translates at the end of verse 16 as help in time of need, is literally well-timed help. That is, that God gives us the exact help that we need exactly when, according to his infinite wisdom, we need that help. His help, though it might feel delayed to us, it's always well-timed help. In fact, it's perfectly timed help. And so don't hesitate to go to God again and again and again. Trust his wisdom. Trust his timing. Trust his mercy and grace that's given to you through Jesus. Let the constant intercession and compassionate heart of Jesus draw you confidently to the throne of God again and again and again. When you think, i got to be the worst Christian ever. I'm so weak. I must be a big disappointment to God. If I was God, I wouldn't be willing to listen to me. I wouldn't even be, I wouldn't want to be anywhere close to me because I'm such a mess. Go confidently to God in that. He is merciful. He is full of grace and he will graciously pour out his unending resources to give you the help that you need. Jesus hates your sin more than you do. But he loves you more than you do too. His heart goes out to you. And each week, communion reminds us of this welcome that we have from God. This welcome through Jesus. Communion reassures us that he is our high priest. It assures us that the heart of Jesus, that when he was on this earth, such beautiful displays of his heart that when he saw the people, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was called the friend of sinners. He had compassion on those, those that others despised. He reached out and touched the untouchables. He showed mercy to those who deserved judgment. He had patience with those that nobody else had patience with. And sometimes I think that we read the Gospels and we go, man, Jesus used to be so compassionate. And then we go to Revelation and go, but that's what Jesus is like now. He's a judge, he's got a sword. Well, Jesus always had the sword of the word. <clears throat> He had pretty judgmental things to say to those who rejected him, to those who covered up the gospel. But he had great compassion. And his heart hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. The heart of Jesus in heaven right now is just as compassionate, just as merciful, just as eager to reach out to those who are dirty, and who are the outcasts. And communion reminds us of this, that his commitment to help the helpless went all the way to the cross, that he gave his life to help those who could not help themselves. And so if you're here, whether you're a member at Piney Ridge Church or not, if your only hope is Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished for you, what he's doing for you right now, interceding in heaven, then you're welcome to come and take communion. I'm here. I'll ask you to stand in just a bit. You'll exit to your left. You'll come up to one of these tables. The communion elements are here. You can take them, head back around um, to your seat, and you can take them there by yourself or uh, with family or if if there's anyone around you um, that you'd like to take communion with, you're welcome to do that. But as you do this morning, Remember that you are approaching the throne of God. And it's not based on anything that you've done. It's based on who Jesus is. What he has done for you, what he is doing for you right now. And I pray that you be strengthened to come to God over and over and over again. If you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, then please don't come and take communion. But I pray that you would come to the throne of God. Approach the throne of God with faith in Jesus. And if you want to learn more about what that means, you can come and talk to me. I'll be down here during communion. I'd love to talk with you or just pray for you. I'd be happy to pray with anyone who wants to come. If you're maybe a little uncomfortable coming right now, but you do want to talk, or if you need prayer, but you don't want to come this morning, you can fill out one of the connection cards and drop it off in the box before you leave today. And we would love to connect with you this week. I'm going to pray and then You can stand, and those who should may come. Jesus, we, we love you because you have loved us first. Please convince us again today or for the first time of your heart for us as Weak sinners, convince us that you are full of sym- sympathy for us. That you are unlike us who so often don't even have sympathy for other fellow sinners. And thank you for making it possible for us to come to God. Holy Spirit, lead us now to come with joy, with full confidence, with great hope in Jesus, we pray. Amen.